0: Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Darylise Lyons. In this episode, we're talking about the enduring impact of the Holocaust and the human capacity for resilience, even after genocide.
1: I don't think you can be an honest observer of the human condition without being um overwhelmed at times by the cruelty that we um that gets visited on people and um so counter it seems to me than who we are we are beautiful every one of us is beautiful we are just so beautiful there is nothing like a human being in the world uh, that we experience we are So remarkable.
0: The word Holocaust, derived from the Greek words holos, meaning whole, and kaustos, meaning burned, was originally used to describe a sacrificial offering. It took on a new haunting significance after World War II, when, under the rule of anti Semitic dictator Adolf Hitler, the German Nazi regime engaged in the widespread annihilation of approximately 11 million people six million of them Jews. Since that time, the name Hitler has been universally recognizable, while the names of many of his victims remain unknown and their narratives untold. The Holocaust and the hatred that fueled it didn't happen solely because of Hitler. In the years leading up to World War II, Jews and other minorities were regularly subjected to microaggressions, discrimination, and persecution. However, Hitler's rise to power turned personal philosophy into political policy. It legitimized, indeed systematized, bigotry. Between 1933 and 1945, Germany and its allies established more than 44,000 incarceration sites to which they sent millions of people because they didn't fit the Nazis' heteronormative Aryan ideal. Of all these sites, Auschwitz was the largest. Detainees would arrive at its massive iron gates and see just above them the words, which roughly translated, and if I'm pronouncing it correctly, means work will set you free. There was no freedom at Auschwitz. Those who weren't immediately killed upon arrival subsisted on starvation rations. They had their heads shaved. They were subjected to non-consensual experimentation and forced to labor day and night. In Mauthausen, another of the Nazi concentration camps, prisoners were forced to walk in columns up the stairs of death, 186 steep steps, carrying large blocks of granite on their backs. That's right. They had to walk up 186 steep steps carrying large blocks of granite on their backs. And they had to do this several times a day without rest while continually being beaten and shot at. Throughout all these camps, many were beaten, some were raped, all were stripped of their possessions. At Auschwitz, this included being stripped of their names The Nazis there tattooed prisoners with identification numbers, a practice that must have been especially devastating for Jewish detainees, considering that Judaism includes a specific prohibition against tattooing. In Leviticus 1928, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. The prisoners didn't make the marks. The Nazis did that. The Nazis committed all manner of atrocities. You're about to hear Joseph Finkelstein speaking about an exhibition at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City. Joseph is one of the Philadelphia board members of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Foundation and the son of Holocaust survivors Saul and Goldie Finkelstein. Saul was marked by the Nazis as prisoner number B-255.
2: In this exhibition, um... There's a shoe. It's a child's shoe, and inside the shoe is a sock. Now, who puts a sock in their shoe? Somebody who thinks they're coming back. So this artifact tells the story of a little girl who got to Auschwitz. They were taking her to the shower. They told her undress, and she put her sock in the shoe because after the shower she was going to take her, get her shoes back, and put the sock back. On.
0: The sock in the shoe conveys the brutal reality of Auschwitz. At the same time, it says something about the human capacity for hope. When I began to embark upon this story of the enduring impact of the Holocaust, I thought a lot about the victims and their victimizers. But it wasn't long before I realized that there was an entire category of people I'd failed to consider.
3: What is the message we want visitors to leave with? And that is about the bystander, I believe, or... Um, standing up, speaking up, speaking out against injustice. And there's a lot of silence.
0: That was Gwen Borowski, the CEO and co-founder of Philadelphia's National Liberty Museum, speaking about the Forbidden Art exhibition that was brought to the Liberty Museum in November of 2019. The exhibition, made possible through a collaborative effort between the National Liberty Museum and the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Foundation, is a collection of 20 images of art created by Jewish and Polish prisoners while interned at Auschwitz. I'll revisit the role of art at Auschwitz later, but for now, I want to address Borowski's point about the role of the bystander, because that's something that will always be relevant. Over the course of my reporting, I kept noticing that people seem to view the relationship between the past and present differently. When I sat down with Alyssa Kraut, assistant curator at the National Museum of American Jewish History, I told her my observation. It seems as if some of the men and women I've interviewed see the Holocaust as present tense, whereas others see it as past, was what I said. And I found her response poignant and useful.
3: I just personally want to make a, yeah. a distinction, which yes. is that I don't think of the Holocaust as present. Okay. I think about it as near. Alyssa is the granddaughter of
0: two Holocaust survivors. Her father was born in a displaced persons camp.
3: So I think there are people who think of it as the far-flung past to get over. But knowing that my father was born in a displaced persons camp and came over when he was like a year and a half old, that means that it's close.
0: Close to all of us if we acknowledge the impact we have on one another and how the effects of trauma are passed from one generation to the next. It's not like you can just sort of segment life into then and now because there's, there is an interplay. There is a distinct relationship between the present
3: and the past. It's really easy for a lot of people to not think about. Or to feel overwhelmed, and that's the hardest thing. Is that, I mean, and this was true in the 30s in America. Is there were marches, hundred thousand people, anti-fascism, you know, against the Nazis. Didn't do anything, right? For years,
0: nothing happened,
3: and uh, that's how I feel now. So it's up to us. So, sounds, you know, I think that's part of where some people shut down is when you say it's up to us. Um, but uh, not being complacent, acknowledging that all of our communities have people who look different from us in them. We are venn diagrams and venn diagrams and so if you can't find that connection it means you're not looking right Um, but that's if we really if those of us who do want to find those connections and find those venn diagrams you know if we are the ones who can manage to be louder and then maybe it'll work out little pessimistic. Yeah,
0: yeah, I am. I'll circle back to these Venn diagrams, these overlapping spheres of sameness. But before I do, I feel compelled to move away from speaking about the various groups to which we belong. After all, even though groups of people might undergo the same external events, their internal experiences aren't collective. They're individual Understanding how someone filters and interprets the events in their lives is essential to understanding them. This is Arthur Kieran, Schottenstein Jesselson, curator of Judaica at Penn Libraries in Philadelphia.
1: Every individual experiences violence against them, psychic, physical, in different ways. We can name the violence and we can name the response, but the individual experience is unique and particular to that person.
0: I thought I'd let individuals share their unique and particular experiences. Here is Bill Schwabe, a 96-year-old German-Jewish refugee whose family fled from Hanau, Germany, to Philadelphia in
4: 1939. My mother, who was uh, very brave during the Nazi period when everything was destroyed, Became very anxious, so so anxious, so so um, uh, almost pathological. She worried constantly about nothing, and my father's role was to to explain that the worries were groundless anxieties which stemmed from the experience that she had. When my father thought of the past he thought of the people that he knew some of whom made it out and did very well and some of course died and did, and some of them died gruesome deaths really bad deaths uh, he never talked about this but I'm sure that it was
0: never far from his mind Alyssa speaking about her grandmother on her father's side.
3: My grandmother, Minna, um, her story was that her town was, you know, they were all marched out into, you know, the hills or the forest or whatever, dig a pit, big pit, take off all your clothes, and then they were, like, they were shot. Um, she fainted while they were doing the shooting, and she fell in the pit. And she came to, like, covered in dead naked bodies she's naked covered in blood um and crawled out of the pit and when you know I think she was trying to crawl away she she came to and she heard like breaking glass or something and she thought it was angels this is strange oh, I, I don't really so i never heard this from her you know that yeah. this is how she's just she described it um and she sort of started crawling away, she realized that it was just the Nazi soldiers just smashing everything. Um, and a soldier saw her and he said, you know, I think she said, you know, I don't know, why don't you just shoot me? Yeah. And he said, well, if you're not dead yet, I'm not going to. And she ended up uh, finding a group of partisans, um, you know, in the woods. Oh so, and that's how she survived the war.
0: Marius Gerovici, a 91-year-old Romanian Jew and a survivor. Marius escaped from Romania to Argentina before ultimately relocating to the United States.
5: I lost my family in Europe, all my family.
0: Marius's wife, Marta, whom he met in Argentina, joined him for our interview.
5: I remember I, I went with my cousin... He went to the, to the army, to the war. He was very happy. I was scared. I said, I'm scared for you. And he said, No, I'm happy. I'm going to fight against the German. I'm going to protect my country. This guy has two wives and two children. The first wife, his wife, remained behind the German line. They told him, Your wife and your children were killed with all the Jews in the area. He said, Okay. And during the war, he was wounded, he has a nurse very careful, it took him to to recuperate to her home, he married her, has another daughter. So after the war, one day and my, my sister home, came one girl and one wife, and then one girl and another wife. She didn't know that he had a, the
6: first wife. Was alive.
0: Oh my God. <laughs> so, what happened? What
6: ended up happening? I don't know because I
5: was not in Europe when the second wife arrived. My sister didn't tell him uh, about the second wife, nothing. And then she went to Israel uh, The second child. But
6: I know what happened with him that he was killed.
5: In the war? He, he was, was killed. No. He arrived to
0: Berlin, and
5: Berlin he was killed
0: in the war. So,
6: he never knew that he
7: has two wife. Deborah Bear Moses, founder of Theater Ariel. My mom was a survivor, so I think her activism came from making sure that what happened in Germany didn't happen anywhere else again. Wow. Did she speak um, about being a survivor? Um, She wrote about it more than she spoke about it.
0: Do you think that your mom's experience influenced her religiosity
7: in any way? Oh, I mean, definitely. You know, I yeah. think it was painful for her to go to synagogue and hear the old melodies that she grew up in. Joseph Finkelstein.
2: My parents were both in concentration camps, and they suffered, you know, great trauma. So it was very painful for them uh, to talk about it. They didn't talk about it to their children, but they didn't even talk about it to each other. They opened up and started talking about it over the years, and I got more and more of the narrative in small pieces. But I was never the one asking. Other people were asking them, and I was listening.
0: Did you want to
2: ask? I did, but I knew that I wasn't supposed to, because that would cause them pain.
0: Dennis Moritz, Jewish poet and playwright whose voice you heard at the beginning of this episode.
8: My
1: grandmother would say to me, what happened to me 60 years ago is clearer than what happened to me yesterday. So I'd say, Grandma, okay, tell me, tell me she couldn't tell me.
0: Why do you think she couldn't tell you?
2: It's rough
6: Uh, because they're all dead.
0: Dennis's grandmother couldn't tell him her story. He had to wait until after she had passed to hear it. I asked him what it was like to finally have answers to at least some of his questions.
1: It was a release. It was such a release to hear the narrative, to hear something of it.
0: Why do some people find it impossible to talk about their trauma? Should they talk about it? Does talking help or hurt?
2: Sometimes trauma is the most powerful. This is another thing that Freud not noted was it's yeah. most powerful when
9: it's not acknowledged.
0: That statement made by Stephen Weitzman, director at the Cat Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at Penn, prompted me to investigate the impact of acknowledging or not acknowledging the pain of our past. To that end, I visited the Jewish Family and Children's Service of Greater Philadelphia, which takes a person-centered, trauma-oriented approach to social service interventions. And I sat down with JFCS CEO Paula Goldstein, Paya Eisenberg, Senior Vice President of Community Engagement, and Carly Brusky, the Assistant Director of the Holocaust Survivor Support Program. Here is Carly.
10: With our Holocaust survivors in particular, when our social workers go into their homes, they're often working with their kids, the survivors' kids, the survivors' grandchildren, and navigating a very complex system of intergenerational trauma there and family dynamics.
0: Paula Goldstein.
8: It's also intergenerational. So there are the children. Of Holocaust survivors who have their own challenges and struggles because they, many of them, were brought into their their parents' trauma. Yeah. And that affected each of them individually, no one way. And then you have grandchildren um, of uh, Holocaust survivors who also have this as part of their legacy. Yeah, and great-grandchildren. And great-grandchildren, too, at this point, certainly for uh, Nazi camp survivors.
0: Bruwski, Eisenberg, and Goldstein told me that the JFCS operates from the perspective that every individual has had a unique set of experiences, and that as such, the approach they take meets every individual where they are, while simultaneously recognizing that every human being is influenced by and has influence over the groups to which they belong. We're back to the Venn Diagrams. We could be the healing
4: when you're feeling all alone. We can be the reason
5: to find the
4: strength to carry on in a world that's so divided. We shall overcome. We can be the healing. We can be the flower in the gun. We can be the healing. We could be the flower in the gun
0: one of the most significant spheres to consider seemed to be family the more i tried to understand the impact the holocaust had on the lives of individuals the more i was confronted with its generational
3: ramifications i just don't know that they could ever be happy that they even surviving um you know i i can't know what it was like but i think you know, you can't complain in a house where your parents have experienced the worst things ever. You can't want things. Um, and when you have that kind of trauma and you don't have a way of dealing with it, you know, you take it out on the people that are around you.
6: When we got married, Marius suddenly was a terrible nightmare. and. Slowly I tried to, for me it was very shocking because suddenly he wake up in the middle of the night with the eyes absolutely open but not wake up and talking with me in German, in Russian, he didn't know that he was was talking to me, I don't know to whom he was talking, and it was night after night for a long time, but then with a lot of love and try to calm him down, he was getting better and better and better. And the way we could build a family and build a relationship with another people, that was he saved him. It takes time,
7: yeah. because
6: he didn't talk about his experience for a long, long time. He starts to talk a lot here in the United oh. States. When with the interview going to the school, uh, talking with children, adults, sometimes at the naval base, in front of how many military people? About
5: 450 here, and by uh, by by electronic means from Florida to Connecticut. But
6: to say the truth. When we are in between other people, I told them, Mario has a lot of things to say, but there are a lot of things that he can't break
5: himself. Many.
0: Even to me. Deborah Bear Moses told me that because her mother found it too painful to go to synagogue, she grew up without being exposed to the spiritual dimensions of Judaism. It was only later, after she reached adulthood, that Deborah found her
7: faith. He shows me the prayer, and it's this beautiful prayer about the different forms in which God molds us, you know, that we can be cloth, we can, we're, like, we're like cloth, we're like glass, we're like stone. It was just gorgeous. I went to services with this rabbi, and I loved the services.
0: She was not alone the notion of reclaiming something that hatred threatened to destroy came up a lot in my interviews.
2: After um, he found out what happened to his father and he got the picture, he said to me that he didn't have guilt anymore. The way he reacted afterwards is he put the photograph on the coffee table and he talked to his father every day.
6: Oh, my God.
2: So I asked him, what do you say to your father? He said, tell him about my life and my children and what they're doing.
1: Oh. The image you bring up of, of, you know, the search or the the acquisition yes. of a lost photograph of a lost image is very, um, can be a very profound moment. And, and what does it, why, what does it do that, that somehow compensates for the real loss, yeah. you know, but that image somehow is, is a source of comfort in the face of that loss. Yes. So is that, does it restore something? Does it, what does it do?
0: I don't know what it does. But over and over again, I heard about saved and salvaged photographs.
10: The photos yeah. are yeah. enormous in terms of you know the impact for the for the survivor and for us. We have them throughout the building here. Survivors often bring like physical copies of their photos to events to show the, the associates. Um, and then I don't think I've ever gone into a survivor's home where they didn't pull out pictures or talk about photos or show clippings in a book. We have one client that keeps a scrapbook of positive sayings. Mm -hmm. That's really sweet. So I think those tangibles are so important for Mm -hmm. them, those concrete items, but especially the photos, Mm -hmm. especially.
3: I had never seen these pictures. I actually found these pictures. So we started doing this project, and I was just like looking through the photo drawer. Everybody's got one, right, in my parents' house. And there was an envelope there, and I opened it up, and it was all these pictures. Um, that I had never seen before. So, you know, I'd never really seen them that young. There was some picture that I found in that envelope that was, you know, my dad at his high school graduation, college graduation. They look so happy because I'm sure, you know, and it's bar mitzvah. I'm sure that that was, that it was almost inconceivable to them (sighs) that life would continue in this way and that they could have these joyful moments. I don't know how long the joy lasts.
0: The 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz occurred on January 27, 2020. And according to the history books, the official end of the Holocaust was May 8, 1945.
4: Memories, uh, fading memories, really.
0: Soon, there will be no survivors left to tell their stories. Here is Max Scholl, an 8th grader at Kelman Brown Academy.
4: Savor the moment with the Holocaust survivor, because in 10 or 20 years, there won't be any more left.
0: His classmate, Yadin Isaacs, agreed.
4: I agree with uh, Max that, we, um, that you should cherish this moment, because um, in, uh, in, like... 10, 20 years, there will be no living proof of this event, and you have to be the ones to carry the memories of this on to the next
0: generation. Stephen Weitzman asks an important question.
2: How do we preserve the memory and the emotional impact and the lessons to be learned in these kinds of events as they recede more and more in history?
1: I think built environments, I think individual artifacts, I think somatic experiences are all very deeply entwined in not only notions of the past, but in the present.
0: When the survivors are gone, audio archives, written histories, memoirs, autobiographies, photographs, architecture, art, artifacts, and objects will be all that remains. These things will serve as the repositories of memory. They, along with the second-hand accounts of those left behind, will become the voices of the victims. To understand the importance of objects and artifacts, I interviewed Josh Perlman, Chief Curator and Director of Exhibitions and Interpretation at the National Museum of American Jewish History.
11: Like a stuffed teddy bear. There's a stuffed teddy bear in our, in our exhibition that was brought over by a child refugee Alone, right, in a room without any other context, it's a stuffed teddy bear that has no meaning. But in context of refugees and especially child refugees that were seeking safety, often being sent away by their own families, in context of this one young woman's story and what it felt like for her to leave Europe and to leave her family, And in context of stories about those who did not survive, then this one teddy bear carries so much historical and emotional power.
0: The teddy bear at the National Museum of American Jewish History, much like the little girl's sock in a shoe at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, brings a human dimension to Holocaust history. These objects convey the lived experiences of children who were stripped of their childhoods. They are powerful, evocative, and real. So is the artwork produced during this time. Specifically, works of art are important not only because they speak to external circumstances, but also to people's innermost emotions. Here's Karen Friedman Peleg, expert on the social-cultural role of trauma in Israeli society.
3: Trauma. I mean, as an emotional experience, but yeah. also as, as a concept
9: yes. has been integrated into our identity.
3: An
0: identity that is multidimensional.
9: All the time we need to
3: emphasize like there is trauma, but also resilience.
0: Nowhere is the intersection of trauma and resilience more evident than in forbidden art.
3: This
12: is forbidden art. So this is art done by the prisoners to, to soothe their minds, to soothe their bodies, um, to, to show what happened.
0: There were two distinct categories of art produced by Jewish prisoners while at concentration camps.
9: There are two kinds of art in the reality of art. We have official art, commissioned yes. by the perpetrators. Yes. So the uh, artists had to work for the SS and create for them. But there's also art that they created illegally.
0: That was Pavel Sawicki of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Museum. I mentioned the Forbidden Art exhibition at the National Liberty Museum earlier. On Friday, November 1st, 2019, I visited the museum and interviewed Pavel and Gwen Borowski, who you heard earlier. Before Pavel and Gwen arrived, Terry Scott, National Liberty Museum Director of Marketing, took me to the exhibition area. As I was examining a portrait of a female prisoner, a member of the museum staff came in, whispered something to Terry, then left. Sorry about the interruption, Terry told me after the employee was gone. I was getting instructions about how to deal with deniers on Twitter. It's staggering, but even in the face of a mountain of accumulated evidence, there are those who steadfastly maintain that the Holocaust never happened. Here's former Philadelphia Inquirer journalist Ed Eisen.
1: It's so hurtful that here today there are people who are essentially saying that Auschwitz never occurred, that, that these horrible things that happened to six million people never occurred. Holocaust denial is
0: where ignorance and intolerance intersect. It is a form of continued perpetration and a way to obfuscate responsibility for white nationalism. It invalidates the experiences of millions upon millions of people. Not only that, without a willingness to confront the human capacity for hatred, we ensure that persecution and dehumanization will continue. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. There are some things we don't want to think about, like our own mortality, but it's important now more than ever, especially if we have people who we love and who rely on us. We need to make sure that those people are taken care of. If you've listened to previous Demystifying Diversity podcast episodes, you've heard me rave about Lavin and Associates. In addition to their free financial needs analysis, owners John and Patty Lavin offer low-cost term life insurance. With their guidance and support, I made a solid, easy, and actionable financial plan, which included my life insurance needs. Please contact them especially now. It's the most loving thing you can do for yourself and for those you care about. To receive a free quote on low-cost term life insurance or a free financial needs analysis or both, call John at 610-453-2331 or email johnlavin at me.com. That's J O N L A V I N at me.com. And as long as we're on the subject of doing things for yourself and your loved ones, I really want to tell you about next level trainings. Whatever your struggles, finances, career, relationships, next level trainings will vastly and quickly improve the quality of your life. The company uses experiential, emotional intelligence exercises to help you see yourself as you are, shift your perspective, and start forming sustainable habits that will transform your life, and by extension, your community and the world. In a supportive environment, you'll come to see yourself and others through a more open, powerful, and freeing lens. I did the trainings and I sent my mom, my sister, a couple of my aunts and so many friends. I basically want everyone to go because I can say from my own firsthand experience and from what I've witnessed in my loved ones that the trainings increase people's capacity for love, connection and vulnerability. The trainings empower us to go for what we want in life and give us the tools to achieve our dreams. If we don't let go of what's holding us back and create the lives we want now, When will we do it? I can't recommend next-level trainings enough. And the company is offering demystifying diversity podcast listeners $50 off on Shift, their introductory virtual training. To add even more value to their offer, if you register for and attend the SHIFT online training now, you'll receive a free voucher to their in-person discovery training valued at $495. The voucher can be used when pandemic gathering restrictions lift. So go to nextleveltrainings.com diversity. That's Next Level Trainings with an S Dot com slash diversity and enter the promo code diversity. You'll be glad you did. Enough focusing on victimizers. They're not where redemption lies. Let's turn to the role of art at Auschwitz.
9: In the world of dehumanization, people did different things to stay human, to stay, not only stay alive, but to stay sane, to not to lose hope.
0: As Pavel showed me around the exhibition, detailing the history behind each work of art, I felt overwhelmed by the simultaneous beauty and barbarism. On the wall of the exhibition, directly opposite the image of an emaciated male prisoner, was a page from a book of children's fairy tales. On the same side as the skeleton-thin numbered haunted-eyed male was the image of a rosy cheeked woman painted to portray the version of herself she was before Auschwitz. Across from her was a page from a sketchbook showing a child being separated from his father, no doubt the precursor to his being sent to the gas chamber. Pavel spoke about the artist's intrinsic drive to preserve something of their humanity, whatever the risk.
9: This is Peter, Peter Adel, a Jewish uh, artist, a Jewish prisoner. And here you can see that he paints two self-portraits. A self-portrait of himself as a civilian, mm-hmm. as, as a, a self-portrait of himself as a prisoner. And he asked this very important question, who is this? Is it me? Yes. Mm-hmm. So again, looking at himself as a prisoner, you know, going from his pre-war civilian normal life to the destruction of him as a man, turning into a number. But so so this this is already a very interesting uh, work of art. But this
0: is so haunting yes. to see the side by side or, you know, front, like the representation. Yes, and, and, and he does hands. that in
9: Auschwitz in 1944.
0: In the prisoners' creation of forbidden art, you can see their resilience. I mentioned the gates at Auschwitz and the words written on them. Arbeit mach Frei work will set you free. Except that it didn't quite mean that. The prisoners who made the sign upon orders from the SS guards purposely turned the letter B upside down. An act of defiance, a message for those outside looking in, a testament to the enduring nature of the human spirit, a form of individual and collaborative expression. Historians say different things, so I'll let you draw your own conclusions but it's clear they were conveying something and that even in the face of fear, at least some of the men and women at Auschwitz continued to find ways to at least attempt to express themselves. Something I found especially fascinating and surprising given the potential consequences if these particular pieces had been discovered were the caricatures.
9: And something that is very dangerous kind of art is caricature. And these are caricatures of some of the SS men who work in the photographic studio. Um, And so, you know, creating artwork like this that makes fun of the perpetrators is dangerous on another level. So they were also trying to, you know, caricature is again an art form that allows us to cope with the reality around us, that we laugh about something that traumatizes us. This concept of finding laughter through tears came up
0: again and again.
1: Humor, I think, is an incredibly important uh, and uh, complex and controversial means of coping with trauma. Many coping mechanisms for
0: dealing with trauma are complex and controversial. So are notions of power and passivity, good and evil, victim and victimizer.
2: The human mind is a complicated theater of aggression, but also victimization, And they kind of, all these different feelings kind of interact with each other in very complicated ways. And that's what shapes who we are.
0: I want to shift gears momentarily and speak about an aspect of trauma that many Jewish and non-Jewish people experienced during World War II. Many people who, in standing for liberty, were placed in violent situations and forced to witness things they could never unsee.
3: But my grandfather, on my mom's side, my mother's father, he was a G.I., in World War II. So we never spoke, we we really don't spend a lot of time speaking about that side of the family, mm-hmm. because the Holocaust story always trumps the 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 experience, right? That's always it always moves ahead. That's the most important. When I started working here, so I've been working here for like seven years now, yeah. I can't believe that. When I started working here, I think the first year, the first yeah. spring. Somebody gave a presentation on um, Jewish GIs in Europe uh, celebrating Passover and how they did that. Uh, I mean, people like, requisitioned rolling skate, roller skating rinks and uh, the, all kinds of different halls and stuff and find, find a rabbi or a chaplain or somebody to lead services. And it's kind of fascinating. And we have a gallery here that talks about the Jewish GI experience in World War II, fighting in Europe, and and that allowed me to finally focus on that side of the family, which I hadn't be- before and hadn't really said, you know, this was an important story too. Yeah. So I think that's also a disservice that we do um, to, to Jews that don't have a Holocaust to American Jews that don't have a Holocaust direct connection. Um, But I think it's a shame.
0: It reminds me of um, what you said about, like, how do you complain when you're growing up in Mm -hmm. a family where your parents are survivors? Like, there's a way that sometimes this horrific trauma, like, Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine, but it's, it's almost like, because it's such a big trauma, it overshadows any trauma that does not rise to that level of mm-hmm. magnitude. And sure. then, and, and it is traumatic. I interviewed someone yesterday whose gran- uh, grandfather was in World War II and was one of the liberators mm-hmm. of a concentration camp. And he was so traumatized, he could not speak about that until his last Seder. I got it wrong. It wasn't Polo's grandfather. It was her uncle.
8: I have an uncle, he was a rescuer of one of the camps, and I, I remember he would not speak about that experience until his last Passover Seder when he talked about it. Um, the trauma had been so severe. So I think everybody rose this boat in a very, very different
0: way, and we respect that.
7: We don't
8: expect
0: any one response. Okay. No one response from individuals who have been traumatized. But what about a collective response? What can we do as a society? What should we expect our institutions to do? In essence, how can we move forward? And where do we go from here?
3: Hi, this is Anna Marie. Darylise, and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844 844- Eight 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 one four eight, and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website com, and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes. Here is Josh Perlman again.
11: I'm not sure our job, whether as a museum or as human beings, is to heal the past, right? The past happened as it did. I think our job in the present day, and this guides a lot of the work that I do at the National Museum of American Jewish History, is to approach the past from a perspective of education and empathy. Education meaning it is critical that we know our past, that we know what hasn't transpired, and especially in an environment that we live in today, which is 24-7 spin, where there are some facts that can be agreed on universally. But we also have to approach it with empathy because there are, there are critical moral lessons to be learned. There are critical learnings to be derived as we face so many challenges in our society today, we can learn from and be educated by the successes and the failures of the past. And that may be on a very micro level in terms of our dealings one-on-one with individuals and how we recognize their humanness in this world. And it can also be, as we continue to teach and learn about the Holocaust, the magnitude to which humans can go or the horrific magnitude to which the horrors that humans are capable of.
0: Perlman's colleague speaks candidly about what she tells her young daughter in the face of recent acts of anti-Semitism, such as the October 2018 shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue, or the 2019 shooting in a synagogue in California. I
3: think I said um, to my daughter, like, they don't know you they hate an idea and they don't the people that that hate us for being jewish they don't know you personally they hate an idea that is that is not a real person it's not a group of real people and um that that's how they can do it, that they've not made you a real person.
0: In order to honor the real people who died in the Holocaust, Louis Gantman, another Philadelphia board member of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Foundation, told me about his understanding of what he and every other Jewish person lost in the Holocaust, an understanding he says he acquired from Ronald Lauder, The international philanthropist, investor, art collector, president of the World Jewish Congress, and youngest son of makeup maven, Estee Lauder.
12: Something that Ronald Lauder said um, when he speaks, he's given a ton of time and money and effort to the Holocaust and to to remembrance. And he said, I'm really, everyone always asks me which relative I lost in the Holocaust. Everybody wants to know who it was. Was it my mother? Was it my father? Was it was. And he said, and I always tell them I lost 6 million relatives. There's a, a time in all every Jewish service, morning, afternoon, and night, that's called the mourner's kaddish, where you stand. Um, if you're mourning a relative, and depending upon who it is, a parent, you mourn for 11 months, a non-parent, you mourn for 30 days, and then once a year, you stand at the anniversary of your death. And you, so um, I've started to stand for the mourner's kaddish every time in the synagogue, because um, nobody's standing for the six million. Mm-hmm. And every day I'm there, it's somebody's anniversary of their death.
0: I'd like to point to a principle that Deborah Bear Moses describes that I think ought to be adopted
7: by Jews and non-Jews alike. Through our history is a history of social activism, of, of tikkun olam, of, you know, of the obligation of repairing the world, um, is, a, is a through line in, in Jewish uh, religious life and spiritual life. This
0: obligation to repair the world requires many things. First among them getting painfully honest about what happened and the role we played in it.
3: Are there people who have reckoned with it, with their history? Yes. Other people who have not? Yes.
0: It means not trying to minimize or explain away the evils we human beings have perpetrated against each other.
5: Always are telling the happy end story, mm-hmm. and you're always telling how you escape and how you survive. The thing you don't want to remember, you don't mention. I'm telling you everything was successful. I don't tell you, I'm not trying to tell you what was not so successful. But anyway, being a survivor, I have to be optimistic.
3: It just speaks to that... um, fairy tale narrative that some people can put on this past without really acknowledging the horrors. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I don't know that someone whom it's not near can fully acknowledge the horrors and I think some of being a human being is to be able to say I don't get it but I also want to um I interviewed someone who was speaking about he was a refugee and during um the night of broken glass his family's Mm -hmm. store was destroyed and it was horrific and he spoke about one of the store employees who was not Jewish coming back and helping them pick up the pieces. Mm -hmm. And there was an acknowledgement that like, okay, I'm not being persecuted, but I, I want to do what little I can, you know? And I feel like that's the lens through which my hope is, is that we can see trauma that we have not, you know, that like, like can, we do whatever little bit there is to do to pick up the broken pieces, even in the understanding that, like, I, I can't know your experience. You
3: can't and know can't, my experience, right, exactly. but, but there. Are, let's be but with each other. There are connections yes. there if we let them be there.
0: Alyssa Kraut described feeling pessimistic about our ability to embrace the spheres of sameness. I'm not sure I feel that way. I have hope. Marta Garavici has hope, too, primarily because she feels safe in owning an element of her identity that for a long time, she says, she felt compelled to conceal.
6: I was always trying to hide that Jew, because I have always the sensation that was not welcome and I was not allowed to be a you. I mean, I would never deny it, but if I could... Be silent, I never thought that I a Jew. I'm proud to be you. I can tell everyone.
0: the trauma of the Holocaust isn't the end of the story. It isn't the beginning either.
1: Here is Arthur Kiron. There's a long extended history of uh, of Jewish uh, suffering and also Jewish survival and uh, And so, to allow the Holocaust to sort of define Jewish identity. Um, is a is a kind of a um, you know there's a famous theologian uh, named Emil Fackenheim, and Emil Fackenheim you may sounds like you've read him so he had this concept of the 614th commandment so there's 613 commandments in the Torah, and the Jewish uh, scriptures and so the 614th commandment was not to let Hitler win. And what does that mean? That means that it's the obligation of every Jew to survive and not let the Holocaust, I mean, this is a riff a bit, but not to let the Holocaust define Jewish identity. My
0: hope hinges not on perpetrators, nor on those they've set out to victimize. My hope rests squarely on the shoulders of the bystander.
3: Liberty, which can be political, but we are not partisan, and that's important. It's just about protecting this fragile, Freedom and liberty that we have um, and the dangers and the darkness that's always right there well, I think if you're protecting liberty you can't be partisan,
0: right Yes yes, you understand that yes
3: although it may feel like a choice
0: to care or not to care about the rights and freedoms of people other than ourselves and those closest to us, defending the liberty of all ought to be an intrinsic part of being a human being. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Josh Perlman, Stephen Weitzman, Arthur Kieron, Karen Friedman-Peleg, Dennis Moritz, Louis Gantman, Joe Finkelstein, Ed Eisen, Bill Schwabe, Marta and Maria Garavici, Carly Bruski, Pia Eisenberg, Paula Goldstein, Deborah Bear-Moses, Gwen Borowski, Terry Scott, Pavel Sawicki, Max Scholl, Yadin Isaacs, and Alyssa Kraut, and to our episode sponsors, Next Level Trainings and Lavin and Associates. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Darylise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead, featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week. And in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.